Welcome back to Fixing the Game. I'm your host, Keir Hitchens. Last episode, we discussed the roots of the Black Sox scandal in exploitation of labor, and how race and labor in America are inextricably intertwined. Times have changed since the early 20th century, though. Players are not such an easy stand-in for the working class. To bridge our discussion of labor to baseball's modern era, we need to tell one story often left untold, that of Kurt Flood and the end of the Reserve Clause. In 1919, the Black Sox were united in their animosity towards Charles Comiskey, the team's owner, who never paid Joe Jackson more than $6,000 for a season's worth of work. For comparison, the average household had an income of $1,300 in 1919, which meant that even though Jackson made significantly more than the average worker, he was still arguably middle class. 100 years later, according to the U.S. Census, the median family income is $62,000. So if today's biggest baseball star, Mike Trout, was paid proportionally to Shoeless Joe, he would make just under $280,000 a year. Needless to say, Mike Trout makes a lot more than that. In 2018, his salary was $39 million, clearly demonstrating that he's placed well into the upper class, even though he does not make as much as some of the owners. Baseball players no longer represent the working class. They have been ushered into the petite bourgeoisie. Simultaneously, the disparity in salary between a company's average worker and CEO, many of whom are the owners of MLB teams, has grown ever larger. In 2007, two researchers from MIT and the Federal Reserve found that in the 1930s, CEOs made roughly 82 times more than the average worker at their company. In the early 2000s, CEOs made 367 times more than their average worker. A 2019 study from the Economic Policy Institute found that since 1978, CEO salaries grew by almost 1,000%, which was much more significant than the stock market growth of about 700% over that same period. In contrast, wages for the typical worker grew by just 11.9% since 1978. All in all, today's disparities between workers and owners, whether in baseball or in other businesses, far outstrip those of the early 20th century, and athletes no longer represent the struggle between laborers and business owners. Although our own cultural context is so different from that of the early 1900s, we must draw the line from then to now. Why did the Los Angeles Angels pay Mike Trout such an exorbitant amount of money? On the surface, baseball is a somewhat more profitable enterprise now than it was then, although it commands less of the American public's attention. However, the key to every baseball player's profit lies in one of the most highly debated rules in Major League Baseball history, the Reserve Clause. In its various forms since the late 1800s, the Reserve Clause stated that a player who played for his team one season was obligated to play for the same team the next season, if his contract was extended. From the beginning of the MLB until the 1970s, owners like Charles Comiskey leveraged the Reserve Clause to blatantly exploit their players' labor. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Comiskey could so drastically underpay his players because the clause prevented them from switching teams or fielding multiple offers. Owners knew the rule was to their immense benefit, so they agreed to shut out of the league anyone who dared to break it. Owners would sometimes quite literally tell their players to take it or leave it. Though players vocally opposed the rule throughout the years, causing some labor disputes like with the Black Sox, 
the reserve clause remained legally unchallenged until well into the 20th century. But in 1969, one player pushed back. Kurt Flood, a star for the St. Louis Cardinals, refused to be traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. Flood then sued Major League Baseball in 1970, arguing that the reserve clause violated federal antitrust laws like the Sherman Act. Flood's challenge to the MLB and the reserve clause was more substantial than previous calls for change, in part because Flood directly addressed the intertwined nature of labor and race in America. As culture critic Gerald Early points out in his book A Level Playing Field, Flood went a step further to link his situation with America's history, suing on the grounds that baseball's reserve clause was not only a violation of federal antitrust laws, but was also a violation of the 13th Amendment outlawing involuntary servitude. Flood's lawsuit came at a time of great turmoil, the end of the 60s. He said that his actions were inspired in part by the civil rights movement. Major League Baseball did not take kindly to Flood's demands nor his analysis of the intersection between labor and race. They denied his call for free agency, which would have guaranteed him the ability to decide which contract he was to sign on to and with which team. In fact, the baseball owners met Flood with the same age-old refrain Landis and the executives used to keep baseball segregated. Changing baseball structure would destroy the game. In 1972, Flood partnered with Major League Baseball's Player Association and took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. In their decision, the Supreme Court ruled against Flood by a margin of 5-3, to three, a result Kennesaw Mountain Landis would have definitely approved of. Baseball fans everywhere turned against Flood after the ruling. When he first challenged the league, Flood simply sought more freedom in his ability to work as a baseball player. Instead, he found himself unwillingly embodying a concept that resonates with baseball and the civil rights movement. Sacrifice. In the midst of his legal challenge in 1971, Flood made a very brief and unproductive appearance on the baseball field with the Washington Senators. While he was not exactly shut out of the league, Flood's challenge to the reserve clause undoubtedly put his career to an end. Flood never found overwhelming support even within the black community. As Gerald Early put it, his protest fell on sympathetic ears, but many balked at the way he invoked the 13th Amendment while making $90,000 a year, roughly 10 times more than the average family income in the U.S. Years later, while turning down a request to be interviewed, Flood reflected bitterly on the backlash to his demands, saying, Do you know what it means to go against the grain of the country? Your neighbors hate you. Do you know what it's like to be called the little black son of a bitch who tried to destroy baseball, the American pastime? Flood and his activism never made its way into the canon of baseball stories, even those about the removal of the reserve clause and the beginning of free agency in the MLB. Instead, the baseball world remembers the three white players who successfully challenged the MLB in one free agency in 1975, Catfish Hunter, Dave McNally, and Andy Messersmith. On the Hall of Fame webpage detailing the end of the reserve clause, Kurt Flood is no more than a footnote as the most recent failed challenge to the rule before Hunter won his battle. The reality, though, is that Flood's sacrifice paved the way for the era of free agency as a whole. So why did Flood never make it into baseball's canon? In a level playing field, Gerald Early compares Kurt Flood to Jackie Robinson, asking much the same question. Early says that American sports culture in the 90s felt compelled to reach back to Jackie Robinson, 
Robinson's story served as a kind of political Rorschach test. Robinson, as tragic hero, represented paradoxically, depending on the faction, how far have we have come and how much more needs to be done. Much like the way Phil Alden Robinson used the civil rights movement to support Reagan's vision of America in Field of Dreams, this contradictory double meaning is at the core of co-optation. In reality, Jackie Robinson's fight to break the color barrier reflected how deeply tied baseball is to racism and to money. In line with a phenomenon that critical race theorists call material determinism, only when it was in the economic interests of the white owners did they choose to integrate the major leagues. To some, Robinson's story still reflects that truth, but Major League Baseball favors another narrative that breaking the color barrier finally rid baseball of racism and reflected how the baseball diamond is a place where men are judged by their ability rather than by the color of their skin. Sound familiar? It should. That's baseball's noble lie, that baseball serves a higher purpose and is therefore separate from the systems of power, money, and greed that plague the rest of society. I believe this is why Kurt Flood never made it into baseball's canon, because owners and executives never had to spin his challenge to support that ignoble lie. Thanks for listening to Fixing the Game. Next time, we'll cap off the series by bringing Field of Dreams and all its historical trappings into the 21st century. Though times have changed for baseball players and their labor, we'll find that baseball's noble lie is alive and well, and the 2021 Field of Dreams game is no exception. <laughs>